Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Brexit Means. This week, politics and Brexit reality collided in spectacular fashion. So we decided to collide two of our stalwart podcasts and bring you the Brexit Means podcast and the politics podcast all at once. So I've just been talking to my colleague Heather Stewart and we've been talking Brexit. And here's what we had to say. As Britain shivers through red alert weather warnings, the latest Brexit blizzard blows into Downing Street. Government ministers have reportedly livid about the EU's latest negotiating gambit, a 119-page lead balloon that would keep the EU courts supreme and Northern Ireland in the customs union. As the Prime Minister prepares for her next major Brexit speech in Newcastle on Friday, a pair of former Prime Ministers, John Major and Tony Blair, speak out on how Britain can still avoid a hard Brexit. And Jeremy Corbyn sets out Labour's vision for life beyond the EU, inside a customs union with access to the single market and finds himself fated by big business. Strange times indeed. And perhaps even more unsettling, I was at the Westminster Correspondents' Dinner last night where Theresa May made a gag-strewn after-dinner speech, which was actually funny. We'll pick through all that and more with our expert panel. Plus, from the EU to America. The dollar has been the world's reserve currency for more than a century now, a reflection of American economic might. But as populist politicians turn to protectionism, will it maintain its dominance? But first, it may seem that every week in politics is a big week for Brexit right now, but some are bigger than others. With all eyes now on Theresa May's speech on Friday, she'll attempt once again the high-wire act of making progress on Britain's negotiating position while keeping her party behind her. Earlier this week, Jeremy Corbyn set out his long-awaited, carefully worded vision for a Labour Brexit. And he was followed by a rare speech from former Prime Minister John Major. But perhaps the most substantial intervention came from Brussels with the publication of a 119-page draft Brexit treaty. In it, the EU summarises the agreements reached in the talks so far. Or does it? Already the document is meeting fierce resistance in London. Well, joining me on the line now is The Guardian's Brussels correspondent, Jennifer Rankin. So, Jennifer, last December it appeared that general agreement had been found on many of the exit terms and we were ready to move on to the future relationship. But now the issue of the Irish border has returned with a vengeance, hasn't it? What, what does this document this week mean for the ongoing talks? Well, I think it is a very significant moment in the talks, the publication of this document, which is the first draft of the withdrawal treaty. And it's important to stress that it is a draft and it is yet to be agreed by the EU27 themselves, let alone go into the um, negotiations with the, the UK. 
But you mentioned the agreement in December, and I think it's important to rewind to that moment because a lot of the the, the furious row that's going on now can really be traced back to the, the fudge and the ambiguity that came in December when the EU and the UK first agreed on what to do about the Irish border. If we go back to that time when Theresa May came to Brussels for her lunch with, with Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission president, there was um, that, that moment where they, they just couldn't agree on Ireland and Theresa May had a call from Arlene Foster, the DUP leader, and she had to break off the talks in Brussels to sort things out with the DUP. So then a few days later, she managed to patch up an agreement with Brussels that in effect the UK signed up to the fact there would be no or full regulatory alignment on the island of Ireland. But it was never clear or spelled out at the time exactly what that meant. So both sides could go away and in, in, take away a different uh, meaning from, from that agreement. And that's what's uh, at the root of the, the, the disagreement now, that as the EU have turned that language into a legal document, they've come up with a very precise meaning of full regulatory alignment, which is that Northern Ireland will stay in what the EU calls a common regulatory area. It will be subject to all EU customs rules and it will be subject to a, a swathe of single market rules on goods as well. So for the UK, they've said that's simply unacceptable. But at the same time, the government has never spelt out what its alternative plan is if it is to achieve full regulatory alignment. And what's the EU doing here? Is, is it trying to sort of push the government into some more clarity by, by you know, sort of setting in stone the, the, the reality of what it signed up to in December? I mean, as you say, it's been greeted with a lot of anger here, hasn't it? Certainly from the sort of Brexit side of the argument. Yes, I think for the, from the EU side, the, it's an interesting question. Certainly, the, the Irish have been pushing this issue very strongly. They don't want the issue of the border to be left until the 11th hour of the talks, where potentially it gets lost amid a whole host of other issues. So they really wanted this tackled early on. And the Commission were happy to support them in that, also supported by countries like France and Germany, who you might call the, the friends of the single market, who are taking a very strong line to defending the integrity of the single market and making sure that there is no sort of ambiguity about the, the border. So I think there, there's been a certain momentum to get this agreed early, but it does seem to have um, even taken some EU officials by the, the strength of the language and the, the, what it's, what's being demanded from the UK is taken even some on the EU side by surprise. So we'll have to see exactly how this emerges in the, in, in the, in the coming weeks and when we get into negotiations with the UK. Jennifer Rankin there in Brussels. Now I'm joined by The Guardian's Brexit policy editor, Dan Roberts, our columnist, John Harris, and the director of the Institute for Government, Jill Rutter. I'm not the director. <gasps> and some woman from the Institute for Government. <laughs> what, what are you? you I'm do a my... programme director for Brexit at the Institute for Government. Ah, a director from the Institute for Government, Jill Rutter. So, Jill, everyone agrees there has to be no hard border in the island of Ireland. Is the EU's draft treaty just spelling out the logical consequences of that? Or is it mischief-making? Well, the EU must have had various options. One option, obviously, was just to sort of put square brackets and say to be discussed, because remember that the option they've spelt out is the third of those three options. It's yeah. a sort of uber fallback, the sort of if we can't get something done through the special deal 
and we can't find a specific solution, then we go to this uh, this bit of text. And obviously, in looking at that text, they've decided to replicate all the bits about alignment in Northern Ireland, but take out that key sentence that the Prime Minister inserted back in December about actually Northern Ireland wouldn't be cut off from the rest of the UK. I mean, it, so Which you could the bit say... That really is, bothers the DUP, right? So that's the sort of, you know, Prime Minister's sop back then to the DUP. Remember, Arlene Foster had her very strong doubts even as the Prime Minister was on her early morning plane ride to Brussels about whether this was workable. Uh, so in a sense, it's sort of you know, confronting the UK with this is the logic of what you signed up to. Uh, you can imagine that if actually they put in that treaty what it meant for relations between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, there might be lots of people hopping around saying it's not actually for the EU to tell us how we run the relationships between Northern Ireland and the rest of GB in an international treaty. Thank you. That's for us to mm-hmm. us and subsequent governments to decide. Um, but I think, you know, you could have done this in a, in a sort of rather less confrontational way. So I think some of the points that Jennifer was making about the Irish pressing for this to be put into very clear language was actually sort of, you know, probably some of the some of the motivations and why it's not been kicked into the distance, which you could have done, said, you know, the fudge work then. At some point, though... The fudge, you know, lots of people picking up on this phrase, but I'm going to claim I trademarked it back in December. At some point, the fudge was always going to hit the fan and start sort of flying all over the place because there are limits to how far you can really go in drafting around a problem. And everybody knew at the time that December was drafting around a problem and deciding, OK, we didn't want to really address it now. Yeah, it's a classic bureaucrat's approach of, dra- of drafting around a problem. Um, and Dan, Theresa May is having to tackle not only this issue with the EU and how the government responds. She seems to be responding quite robustly, but also the divisions on her own side, isn't she? Yes. I mean, you have to remember why this is happening now, which is that we're three weeks away from the next council meeting, at which point we were meant to not only agree the transition, which was the ultimate can-kicking exercise, two years, maybe even longer, um, but we're also meant to then start talking about the future relations. And the problem for the Prime Minister is that she's got division now on both fronts. Um, she's got disagreement with Brussels about the what we need to firm up before we can agree a transition and then she's still got this big internal question which is I think is going to try and address in her speech tomorrow which is about you know what do we actually want in the long term for the country as a whole so um uh, my problem with I completely understand why Brussels has done what it needs to do now because otherwise we would allow the transition to go past without really grasping the nettle but what it's done is crystallise an almighty problem. I mean, this is the, the red lines have just got underlined and 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 and, and sort of um, gone over again in pen yesterday because now it's everybody's backs are up. People now feel that Europe is trying to take over Northern Ireland, and 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 it's not just the the the, the, the Brexit ultras that feel that. I think you see a broad swathe of, uh, of 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 even quite moderate opinion this morning really feeling like this is a step too far. And no matter what the justification for getting there is it's it's made it very hard now for either side to back down and and i think that soft brexit was dealt a real potentially fatal blow yesterday and we're now looking between a probably a choice between a very very hard brexit and the kind of reopening of the the, the referendum question that john major was talking about yesterday i think those are increasingly looking like the two options and that middle ground just got a lot smaller yesterday talk us through the talk us through the major speech that was that was major major's major speech it was <laughs> major's major speech 
was you, uh, you were there, weren't you? It was, was quite yeah. an interesting. Yeah, it was a, in front of a very small crowd of business people at Somerset House, uh, but very much in keeping with this pretty coordinated strategy we're seeing across from Tony Blair to Andrew Donis to the CBI to the business community at large. I mean, you know, there is a right wing conspiracy that this is a conspiracy, and I think they're right. This is coordinated and deliberately timed to um, talk up the, 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 the option of reopening the national debate. And the sequencing they see is that Parliament should have a vote, what uh, Major crucially said, a free vote in the autumn about whether or not to accept the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May brings back from Brussels. And then crucially, if they don't accept it, um, have the option of calling for a second referendum and tossing it back to the country. Um, and I think that that was until yesterday a pretty low chance of that happening i still think it's low but it went up significantly jill what do you think can you can you imagine a, a prime minister offering a free vote on an issue of this kind it's quite interesting i mean people pointing out lots of people saying you know well, john major he didn't offer a free vote on maastricht and he was defending uh, defending why he didn't do that i think it's quite interesting actually if john major had offered a free vote on maastricht because one of his big problems i was in number 10 when uh, number 10 was completely dominated by trying to get the maastricht treaty through what was really interesting then was actually the way labor took uh, took on maastricht and formed this rather unholy alliance you know not unprecedented with the extreme Europe skeptics who hated the Maastricht Treaty and all it did and you know thought that was more important than uh, than party unity you know, such they, as Ian Duncan Smith was pointing out got the whip suspended I think it's really interesting if Major had offered a free vote on the Maastricht Treaty you know, it would have been not quite the same issue for John Smith to bring his troops in behind uh, uh, form an alliance with Ian Duncan Smith and uh, and the Majorite bastards in the way that they did that so maybe actually he should have offered a free vote then he may be maybe he's trying that. to learn from his own experiences but he, but he was pointing out that actually there was a free vote on entry, which I think is a sort of, in a sense, you know, his better precedent, um, which was obviously to make it easier for the Labour supporters of entry to join the Conservatives and vote, vote there. I think it's really interesting. We were sort of kicking around in the office, you know, the Prime Minister is at the moment, you know, all these bills, the moment they hit a difficulty, move to the right. So we're heading for a real legislative pile-up at some point. We've had the deferral of the vote on the uh, you know, taxation cross-border trade bill, uh, a.k.a. the customs bill. In case they lose a vote on because that. Because yeah. of that potential vote on a customs union. And I was just sort of kicking around in the office, well, you know, maybe actually the better tactic would be for the Prime Minister to offer a free vote on that and just say, you know, well, OK, you know, well, you can interpret the referendum one way or the other. You can interpret it as wanting to get out of the ECJ and things. Oh, let's have a free vote on independent trade policy versus sticking with a common external tariff, which is what the customs union... But she'd lose. Fundamentally what, what would happen then? But, I mean, how wedded... I mean, one of the interesting questions is she might lose, but it's quite an interesting question. If you put this out as a sort of issue there, um, I mean, you could have said that after she lost her majority last uh, last summer... Was there a sort of totally different way of actually sort of trying to run the negotiations, which would be doing it and saying, actually, I've got to do the negotiations on the basis of finding out where there is a majority in Parliament for what options, rather than sort of you know, ramming through that. And actually to allow Parliament, actually confront Parliament with the option, do you want to take the power to dictate the sort of choices she's, to government? I think it would be quite an interesting choosing, tactic. Yeah, she's choosing, isn't she, to dig in behind not a customs union. She's she's choosing to play it in the way that she 
is she she could say either of these are possible plausible options let's test the opinion of yes, parliament although, and then you would end up with a softer brexit wouldn't yes, you yes although interestingly she seems to have backed away from the idea of making it a confidence vote i think perhaps realizing that well she could only that do that it, 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 the fitstone parliament act I means she could only do that by basically promising to resign if she lost it couldn't she which she seems somewhat unwise it would be a bit rash <laughs> in circumstances <laughs> yeah, exactly john you've written hello. a piece this hello you've written a piece this week about uh the elites. We've just been talking about some of them. No, that, was jo- in, that was in the headline. That wasn't my word, in ah. fairness to me. Well, I was, ju- I was just about to say uh, John Major, Andrew Adonis, uh, most of the other people we've been talking about in this, in this conversation certainly come into that category. But, you know, those Brexit voters, it, d- 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 do we and do any of the politicians who were wrestling with this really understand what, what they wanted? And also, are they sitting out there fretting about whether we're in or out of the customs union the no i think everything else no i mean arguably we all should be tuned into all this in its fine detail because it's tremendously important but uh i find it very personally i find it quite difficult to to really immerse myself in all this and keep up to speed i take my hat off to dan whose reports i read every morning in a vain attempt to educate myself uh and i think that uh in brexit voting places my experience talking to people, which, as you know, I do reasonably frequently, is that they're tuned out and they're just waiting for something to happen. And that something is that, you know, the point at which uh, at which we're out is upon us. And um, it means, really, that all of these seemingly important interventions, and I thought John Major's intervention yesterday was very, very powerful, but I'm just not sure how much traction they have. Not much, I don't think, because apart from anything else, we're in a phony war stage as far as life as it is lived is, is concerned. There are no uh, manifestations yet in people's lives of all the uncertainty and, further down the line, awfulness that's talked about in politics, which means that you have got this huge disconnection. And also, on the part of millions of people who voted Brexit, one thing they know about the European Union and its arrangements is that if it doesn't get the answer it wants, recent history suggests that it then goes back and tries to get that, you know. Uh, and I think people are wary of that. And I think that's what Nigel Farage, who at the moment thankfully is in abeyance, people like him are just are, are waiting on the sidelines ready to just to come back and say, there you are, they didn't listen. It's a tremendously dangerous, fretful point, really, which quite apart from the the whys and wherefores of the deal we get and the consequences of that, I think the politics of all this are, are really, really, really dangerous. And I, you cannot blame people like Andrew Adonis and John Major for getting involved, but I just don't think people necessarily listen to them. And do you, does that make you think... So, so Remainers are really grasping at the idea of a second referendum, aren't they? That this, this is the way, well, a few. the democratic I mean, way... Some, some of them are, again. Yeah, yeah I don't so, know how many some of them are. people there but are. I, do, do you think that's a dangerous idea, in a sense? Because you had a lot of people voting in that referendum who don't normally vote, who, who were participating, felt this is a sort of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to kind of change the direction of the country, and, you know, here we are coming back and asking them again. Is that, is that a sort of dangerous Yeah, quite do? so, quite so. So, and I think, um, I mean, this would, you know, I'm a Remain voter, so I personally think this would be a very good thing and I would feel a great sense of relief. But if there was a second referendum and if Remain then, or a softer version of Brexit, one or the other, then carried the day, from my perspective, that would be a great thing. But I think there is a hell of a problematic bundle of stuff you have to think about in the context of that, which is, I mean, it goes into things like our electoral system and the fact that people in places like Merthyr Tidville and Stoke-on-Trent and Dagenham and all of the places which very heavily voted for Brexit uh, lived in places where their vote hadn't counted for decades. 
probably ever at all, you know. Labour, the Labour Party chiefly just weighed the votes and its MPs got in and whatever. And then suddenly, for the first time, you can't get anything more more like PR than a referendum, right? Everyone's vote counts. People are aware of that. Uh, and because they're not necessarily tuned into all the debate that we're talking about, their heads, I think, are still at where they where they were last summer. And they, they still invest a great deal in this. I mean, a Labour MP, in fact, I can tell you this was, Ed Miliband told me that in Doncaster, his constituency, people felt very optimistic about Brexit still. They're very excited about it. They think it's a great thing. It's a chance to start again and all the rest of it. And if you then go back to them and say, you're going to have to vote for this again, and the chances are this time your side will lose, I think all hell politically could break loose. It won't be pleasant. And Jill, there's a, there's a funny thing of timing here, isn't there? You, you, when you talk to ministers and when you talk to backbenchers and, and you know, the, they're sort of weighing up, you know, what's the general, what, what's the timing of Brexit relative to the timing of the sort of economic consequences and when they start to hit people's lives relative to the timing of different leadership challenges and, what, you know, how they might play out. And there's a, there's a kind of very strange thing where people are sort of overlaying all these different timelines on top of each other and wondering and how this plays out. It makes quite a big difference, doesn't it? Yeah, so we're trying to pull together something at the moment which looks at actually how do all these sort of potential votes that we're going to get in the autumn play out, what's the sort of timing on them. Assuming we do a deal around October, that needs ratification in Europe. Uh, the government's promised, uh, promised, or at least been forced by uh, uh, by the Grieve Amendment to the Withdrawal Bill, unless they manage to overturn that somehow, to introduce, you know, not use the powers under withdrawal bill until they passed a statute. Uh, so loads of complexities about that. And one of the things about fitting in another referendum is to have a, I mean, we've been, uh, we've been chatting to the Electoral Commission. They say you can do a referendum quite quickly. What you can't do is a good referendum quite quickly. That actually takes quite a long time to get things sorted. It's much more problematic than the three or four weeks you need to put on a general election. So then you're getting to the stage about having to, if you actually wanted the space for that, to asking Europe for a delay. So having to go and ask the Article 50 period to be extended. Because remember, the one certainty in this timetable is that once the Prime Minister triggered Article 50, 29th May last year, she set in train something which, if nothing else changed, sounds a bit like the Prime Minister, nothing else changed, we would be leaving the EU without a deal, with or without a deal, on the 29th of March 2019. So the EU has to unanimously agree uh, to give us a time extension if we want it. So that also plays in. So the timings become really, really tricky if you want to fit in a second referendum, whatever. And there's some people who are definitely on the sort of Romani side. I mean, you know, Ken Clark's deeply hostile to referenda. I mean, hates referenda. Not clear they would all vote for referenda. <laughs> and I think, I, I, I wasn't around at the time, but I think, wasn't the first person, one of the first people say we need a second referendum, Nigel Farage? So I'm not sure it's uniquely Remainers who will want a second referendum. Maybe he's less keen on it uh, now, but I think in January he was saying that, mm. you know, it would be useful to revalidate the vote. And the really interesting question is if you had a referendum, it revalidate the vo vote. What's that going then to what? do to the negotiations? Yeah, yeah John? The thing is, in all of this, of course, procedure and the the uh, the actual technical business of how on earth a second referendum would work is relevant. But there's a sort of deep philosophical question here as well, which is that one of the reasons that we're in this mess is because referendums are never really about what's ostensibly on the ballot paper. They're always about other things. And if you try and fit them into a, a, to a representative democracy, it usually has dysfunctional consequences. 
And so the idea that somehow we'll repair all the damage caused by the first referendum by having another one, which presumably then would would create a constituency of people who might want a third or fourth one down the line, it's just a nightmare. It doesn't mean I can sit here as columnists sometimes have to and propose any solution. All I can just... All I can do is just sigh and say, what a terrible, terrible mess. The one the one person I'd like to hear from is David Cameron. That's what occurs to me every day. Well, I, the, the dinner I was at with Theresa May last night, she said he, he was he wanted to join us, but he's snowed in in his, in his wheelie caravan writing his memoirs. So <laughs> he does seem to be uh, ba- ba- barricaded in as far as, as far as one can tell. Um, let's move on to... Labour, shall we? Labour's shadow cabinet has been wrestling for months with the challenge of balancing the concerns of its own Leave voters with the desire of the overwhelming majority of party members who want to see the softest Brexit possible. Jeremy Corbyn finally set out his plan this week for a deal that would maintain regulatory standards and keep Britain in a permanent EU customs union. It won praise from the CBI, the Institute of Directors and even former Chancellor George Osborne. So how different is it to the government's stated position, Jill? Uh, well, we obviously don't know the government's stated position. It's not stated tomorrow, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're all waiting to see what the uh, what the prime minister says or whatever. But the prime minister said it, you know, has said she wants a sort of customs arrangements, customs facilitation. Not quite clear what the government's going to come out, but clearly, Jeremy Corbyn isn't hung up at all on the desirability of doing independent trade deals. And indeed, one of his, uh, uh, one of his things there, um, though it's a sort of budget for job, uh, Brexit for jobs, he's not interested in preserving Liam Fox's jobs. So he's perfectly happy for the UK to take its trade deals from the EU and be part of that. He does actually want to be involved in those, which is quite interesting. That'd be a bit of an ask for a third country. So that'd be quite an interesting, uh, interesting bit on his sort of list of asks. Um, he's, you know, the government said it doesn't want to undercut regulatory standards and stuff like that. Jeremy Corbyn equally, you know, is happy to take regulation from the EU as long as the UK has a bit of a say. He's got a line there about not being acceptable to be a rule taker. Again, a bit difficult, but he's got bits he doesn't like about the commitments you're required to make in the single market either. So there are different lists to the ones that uh, that the government might have. Uh, things about state aids, you know, he's worried it might get in the way of his renationalisation agenda and things like that. So he's said, you know, there are, I think there's a line about exceptions, clarifications and whatever. The interesting thing where he does agree with the government is that free movement has to end. So he's got this bit about, as a statement of fact, free movement has to end. I think that's really weirdly drafted. Dan might be able to explain to us what exactly that means. Uh, and instead, we have sort of reasonable and fair migration, and we have various sort of things to bolster up the labour market. The other bit that he's uh, that he's quite interestingly very pragmatic on is participation in a lot of EU regulatory agencies. And he says, you know, we shouldn't actually incur all these extra costs and inefficiencies because we've got this ideological hang-up about the ECJ. So he's positioning himself in a sort of very pragmatic sort of way, except when it comes to Labour's economic agenda, where he's pretty clear that, you know, he doesn't want the EU getting in the way of that. And that he's got to still look over at the, you know, one of the big reasons that Labour, so many Labour constituents heavily voted leave, which is they don't like free movement. They're really bought into the taking back control of our borders. Now, we've always been told by the EU that the four freedoms are indivisible. 
So I think it's really, really interesting. Would uh, would a Labour government, and when you talk uh, Labour people, the bit they're hung up on is can we reconcile being you know, as close as possible to the single market with something that allows us to say low-skilled migration, not so fussed about high-skilled migration, but low-skilled migration, as we know, mass low-skilled migration will end. Or will it be enough that actually the numbers are dropping off anyway? That's, I think, a really interesting question. Mm. Dan, you think the Labour position might fly, don't you? Think it's, think it's a- yeah, I think it was smart politics. I also think it was plausible policy. I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions in there, but it wasn't beyond the realms of the possible. Um, I think... Uh, Jill summed up very, very well. I don't have that much to add to it. But I do think that what it indicates actually is that there is a bigger game. It's hard to imagine in this time when we're completely convulsed with Brexit and talking about little else. But actually, there is a much bigger game, a battle, uh, a battle here for capitalism, battle here um, for, you know, the future, the kind of country we, we live in. And Corbyn has his eye on that bigger prize and, and is clearly sees Brexit as a, as, a, as a means to get there. And I think increasingly the Tory party manoeuvring and the business community's manoeuvrings are, 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 are increasingly influenced by that sense that Corbyn is breathing down their, their neck as well. So, it, 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 I mean, I agree with John that the all, all roads here on Brexit lead to the most almighty headache. But it's hard to imagine that we're just in the foothills of some, some bigger struggle, which is the, the, the next election and the, the, the future of British capitalism. Ultimately, John, presumably those, those voters who wanted Brexit are, are, are not going to judge on the basis of what particular bit of institution, you know, EU institutions were inside or out, outside of. They're going to judge according to whether their lives are better or worse or not. Yes, although I think, as has been said already, I think um, the issue of free movement and immigration and as Jeremy Corbyn sees it, cheap labour, which in some places, not all places, is kind of symbolic in the sense that bluntly put there aren't many immigrants around right i think that will be fairly central to the way that all this is judged and that's why that's that's one of the reasons why corbyn is playing it like he is i mean at the moment he it strikes seems to me that he has his own version of having his cake and eating it um in the sense that because he's still a sort of political princess diana onto which his supporters project all of these things which are probably truer of them than they are of him in the sense that there is still this idea that somehow in the fullness of time his innate Europeanism will flower despite 40 years of evidence to the contrary. Uh, he's still managing to ride both horses at once. And I think actually the evidence of the last sort of, uh, what, six or seven months going back to the election are that uh, he and his people may have the political skills to successfully do that. That doesn't mean it won't blow up in their faces if they, once they or if they take power. But I think they can. I think they can carry on playing to both galleries. Well, it's much easier to being. do that when you're not having to go to Brussels and do the negotiations yourself, right? It's much, it's much easier so. to sort of sit on the opposite, opposition benches and, and uh, you know, take a so. coherent position. But I mean, we shouldn't. The other thing is, we shouldn't. Um, we shouldn't underestimate that the next election may very well be conducted against the backdrop of the end of the phony war that I talked about and rising food prices and a hell of a pinch on the public finances and tax receipts and companies relocating and all the rest of it and um the other thing that i've always thought is that um if if this process crashes horribly if there is something close to a no deal brexit and some process of flouncing out i think that could play very well for the tory party if it's still standing at that point because it, it will sort of essay patriotic themes of standing alone and 
the idea that perfidious Europe has, has ratted on us and all the rest of it. And although they look to be in a terrible mess at the moment, that, that really could be a great political help in the fullness of time. It definitely increased in possibility after yesterday, I think. The idea that uh, on top of all of that, they can now add defending the integrity of uh, the United Kingdom on, and standing firm on the Northern Ireland border to all of that, I think, really strengthens the hand of those that want to see us just flounce off. Mm, Theresa, Theresa May said in the House yesterday, no UK Prime Minister could sign up to what, what Brussels is demanding. And she was using her sort of rather imperious mode, you know. But it's quite interesting. If you look at what Corbyn suggested... The, Actually, what he's suggesting is very similar to the language in that EU document about Ireland, because actually the common regulatory area applying across the UK is basically one of the things Labour's offering. You could read the annex actually as offering a customs union, a common regulatory area, but they don't mention free movement. Obviously, free movement is not relevant in the Ireland context, the common travel area. But if you just extrapolate that across the UK, then the EU and Corbyn would be not that far far apart, I think it's fair fair to say. And I think the other thing that was really interesting about John Major's speech was him noting that for a Conservative government in this way to be alienating the business community, and some of the most you know strangest headlines uh, of CBI back Corbyn, IOD come out for Corbyn, sort of very strange sort of politics here at the moment. And John Major saying, you know, these are supposed to be the, you know, we're supposed to be the people who understand business and can speak for business, and we're just not listening to them. So I think it's some very interestingly weird dynamics going on at the moment caused by Brexit. And... I mean, to add on to the alignment between where the EU is and Corbyn is, I would say that's where Theresa May and a large chunk of the cabinet is. Where they were heading until a few days ago, and we'll find out tomorrow whether it's still there, is a sort of um, former Brexit in name only. I mean, this idea of of managed regulatory divergence is all about basically keeping everything exactly the same, but retaining the possibility of maybe one day. At some time in the future, yeah. And, and And in some respects, what the EU laid out yesterday was a blueprint for that across the UK. It's up to the UK whether they want to um, make the border at the Irish Sea or not. Uh, But actually, they've offered a blueprint for that being UK-wide. The key thing holding them back is the um, uh, the, the Brexit ultras who could, uh, I I don't think, bring down the government, but could bring down Theresa May, and they could trigger a leadership contest if she attempts to do that. And I think that's the really interesting thing. Paradoxically, there's a lot of alignment here on what could happen, but they are holding... Uh, a gun to her head. Although, interestingly, they could trigger a leadership contest, but they might not be able to carry it. You know, it's one of those things where 62 MPs, which the, the ERG has, is, is, a, is a, in some context quite a large number. And in, in, but in the context of the size of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, is quite a small it's number. It's enough which to is blow kind her brains out. It's not enough to get what they want. Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. But exactly. the interesting question is for the Conservative leadership is you need one of your candidates to get into the top two. Mm. And then it goes to the party. And what we know is the Conservative Party is more Eurosceptic than Conservative MPs sitting in Parliament. Very much more so, yeah, absolutely. John, last question to you. Do you get any sense as you go around the country and chat to those voters that that anyone's changing their minds about Brexit? Uh, I have in some places. Uh, When I mean, it's it's been sort of three or four months since I did this, but when I was in um, inner city Birmingham, Now, I went to Hansworth, which, as you probably know, is a very sort of cosmopolitan, multicultural kind of area. And during the referendum, what I was struck by there was the fact that so many British Asian people uh, were voting Leave. That was when I sort of knew that that Leave was in with a serious shout. And we met people, uh, the same people, actually, the same individuals, because we just went back to their businesses and some of them had changed their minds. 
but uh, relative to the the other places that I've been lately, like you know Kent and the Northwest and Yorkshire and various other places, I just got the sense that um, as with the opinion polls, really, two two hardened camps have just dug in, and because of the fact that the debate is full of all of these things that run much wider than Brexit, I mean it's essentially about a deep deep cultural dif- deep deep cultural difference. Uh, of the kind that you see in the States, really. I don't think that it's going to shift. Nothing has changed. Well, you can follow Theresa May's speech live on Friday with all the reaction and Brexit analysis at theguardian.com. My thanks to our panellists, Dan Roberts, John Harris and Jill Rutter. Thank you all very much. Next week, normal service returns on the Brexit podcast and we'll have the benefit of knowing what Theresa May will actually be saying. So we're going to go into a deep dive on all of the big Brexit speeches of the last few days and try and make sense of it all. I've been Dan Roberts and the producer of the Brexit podcast is Rowan Slaney. And if you want to get in touch with us, email brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. Bye-bye. more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.